following message was given by Mark Beckton on Sunday, December 11th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Take your Bibles and find Ephesians chapter 2, New Testament book. If you're new to places where books are in the Bible, there's a table of contents that I still have to use when we get to those minor prophets. Gives you the page number. So you can find it there, Ephesians chapter 2. My name is Mark Becton, and I have the privilege to be one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And we're in the midst of Advent. Already, uh, two Sundays ago, uh, Robert taught from God's Word on God's love. Last Sunday, Tim taught from Isaiah chapter 9 on God's joy. And for the next two Sundays, I will be looking at Ephesians chapter 2 as we look at God's hope as well as our peace that comes from Him. And the unique thing is we have to be reminded of these. That's the reason I want us to start with Ephesians chapter 2. And I want us to look at verses 11 through 14. So look at those with me. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Honestly, we we need to go back and remember the love, joy, hope, peace of Christ in these seasons, and particularly the Christmas season, because often the Christmas season may be the hardest to experience it. I I was reading from a, a website on better health, And they identified that in the Christmas season, there's an intensity of often despair. And and they they listed some of the reasons why, some of the experiences that are common during the Christmas season. Here's the short list. It's during the Christmas season, you can experience the stress of financial and time pressures. You can experience isolation, family tension, separation or divorce, even bereavement. But when I looked at that article and began to read more, what surprised me and disappointed me was they gave an answer to how you can better address these things in the Christmas season. Essentially, it all depended on you. How you responded to bereavement or loss or financial and time pressures. I said, how you responded to these Determined your well-being. And candidly, that's completely opposite of the gospel. Our joy, our hope, our peace, our love that we receive from the Father is not dependent on what we do. 
It actually is dependent on what he has already done. But still, I can confess this to you. When I get into the Christmas season, it's easy for me in the midst of those stresses to think nobody else has ever felt this stress like I'm feeling it right now. I get so focused on that moment, I, I feel like I'm the lone person in the world who's ever gone through this. And what I want to do right now is take those same things from the <laughs> Better Health article and share with you that even in the first century, you'll find those same things surfacing in the life of Joseph and Mary. First Christmas. Here's the list. You remember financial and time pressures? Some scholars believe that uh, Joseph and Mary were not well off as a couple, and now they are in Bethlehem. The time pressures, though, have been that all of this that's happened in their life with the coming of Christ has been during their betrothal. Anybody remember the months leading up to your wedding? Those are tense times, and now it's been exacerbated by this change that's going on. There's the feeling of isolation. Uh, they have traveled into Bethlehem, and they've found a place and, an inn, and, and a child is born and it's a male child. Now the Jewish tradition is when a male child is born then the family comes out. Family goes to the house. Family, friends begin to sing and celebrate the birth of a child. And Mary and Joseph don't have anyone who knows where they are, what's going on except the graciousness, the graciousness of God who sends his angelic choir to serenade shepherds to come and to be a part but outside that it's a feeling of isolation family tensions oh you've got this moment where joseph has people in his ear saying well mary is showing with child and it's obviously not yours so something's gone on uh, you probably should at best end this and some of them could be so irate that according to jewish law they could end her he has that in his ear. But also even the fear of separation, divorce. Uh, betrothal in the time of Mary and Joseph was just as binding as though they had been married. And so now, for, as they're going through this, uh, there's a period that Mary knows what's going on before Joseph does. She doesn't know how Joseph is going to respond to this. So she's dealing with the tension. Is there going to be a separation here? And Joseph's wondering in his mind, could that be? And then the bereavement. Bereavement is not just for the loss of a loved one. Bereavement can be the loss of a future. The loss of the plans that you had put down. The picture of the life that you had. And now that has completely changed. It's so aggressive that even two years after his birth, they will be fugitives heading to Egypt. And this was not the way they pictured married life together. So all of this, and the sad reality is, you, you and I both understand these emotions and these stressors do not wait their turn. Okay, you're getting bereaved right now. I will wait about the family tensions until that's done. It doesn't do that. They all make their way in at any one moment. But as Solomon has said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the sun. Mary and Joseph experienced these things just as you and I experience them now. Which is why God was so gracious to them and to us. And here's how. What you find the Father doing in the midst of all these tensions is helping Mary and Joseph by reminding them of the bigger picture. 
he will go to Mary, an angelic messenger, and, and remind her. Here's the big picture of this as to why you're experiencing this. Christ, the Messiah, is coming. He'll do the same with Joseph in a dream. Give him the bigger picture. Because he's the keeper of the story. Uh, Al Mohler, who's president at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, wrote a book years ago called uh, The Conviction to Lead. But he talks about the responsibility of the leader in an organization, always keeping the bigger story before uh, the organization. So, so many times you can get so focused on the challenges of the organization, you forget why the organization is here and what they're supposed to be doing. But the same is true when all the challenges and stresses begin to compound in one moment. You just have focused on that moment and that challenge that's unresolved. And the Father is so kind and loving to say, stop for a moment. Let me remind you of the bigger picture as the keeper of the grander story, which is what we find doing here in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 11, the first two words that we read in Ephesians 2 verse 11 was, therefore, remember. Now, the things we need to remember is that there is hope for you. And the Father begins to identify why this is such a powerful thing to remember by first reminding us of our hopelessness prior to Christ. And he does that by taking us all the way back. And therefore, you remember Bible students, when you see therefore in a verse, it means go back and understand what that word is there for. So go to the previous verses. Let's now look at verses 1 through 3. This is important, so let's see what it says. It says, and you... We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's referring to Satan. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In short, let me start with the statement. Basically, we were before Christ among the walking dead. That's the statement that you find here. You were in trespasses and sins. Now, several weeks ago when I was teaching about the Lord's Prayer, about uh, debts or trespasses, uh, the, the word trespasses can be a word used for sin that means God drew a line. And, and this trespass has consequences when you cross it. Now, you will find that in, in Romans chapters 5 and 6, it talks about the consequences of the crossing. Let's first talk about the history of the crossing. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Uh, God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, set up a tree in the middle of the garden, said, do not eat its fruit. He drew the line. And Adam and Eve ate the fruit, crossed the line. And there were consequences for that. Among those consequences is an exchange. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The wages of our trespasses, crossing the line, the wages of our sin is death. Now, in the first century, this word wages was, was common for exchanging. Uh, if you want to take another picture to it, go back to Little House on the Prairie and those pictures you had of changing out work for tools or changing out livestock for fabric. There was an exchange taking place. It's what happened. 
When it comes to our trespasses, the exchange that happened is we once, according to Genesis 3, had the beauty of intimacy with God. To walk and to talk with God. But when sin took place, there was an exchange. We exchanged out the intimacy that was graced to us by God to walk and talk with Him. For a life without God, separated from Him. And knowing that He is our spiritual life. We are separated and now live in spiritual death. And we do not live alone in spiritual death. It says in verse 2. That we're living now according to the course of this world. So what is the course of this world? Uh, I wanted to know how was that word used elsewhere. So I, I read somebody who researched it. His name is Dr. Kenneth Wiest. He does word studies in the New Testament. Just, just listen how he describes the course of the world as described here. It involves all that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any time current in the world. It constitutes the moral or immoral atmosphere we inhale from the world of men who are living alienated and apart from God. The bigger picture. In essence, as I say it here, before salvation, we are the walking dead carried along in the same stream of thought, passions, and whatever culture in that moment says is good or not. Only after salvation can we look back and see how hopelessly enslaved we were to our shared views and passions in this course of the world. Let's talk about being enslaved to our passions, what that's like. It's in verse 3. As the walking dead, it simply says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now the key word here is actually flesh because these words for passions and desires could also be used for godly passions and godly desires. But it's being qualified here by saying we're talking about the desires that come with our walking dead nature. The course of this world nature which is, which is driven by body and mind. Body and mind, I, I can just confess it to you. There are times in our walking dead nature, our, our nature of this world, where basically we just have to have what's before us right now. It's like a shark frenzy and suddenly something goes on in our being and we're saying, I have to have this now. And we're blind to the consequences or don't care. That's the body. But then there's the mind. Uh, the mind can begin to cultivate thoughts regarding convictions. Opinions, consensus. And when those views of consensus, opinions, and convictions seem to flow in the stream, the current of the walk of the walking dead of our world, it's very easy just to let our actions step right into it as well. Which is why we have to constantly be reminded of our salvation in Christ. Because we'll be tempted to live outside that. Uh, it's part of the course of the world. Now, let me just give you a picture. It's not just the course of the 21st century. It's the course of the 1st century. 
Several years ago, I had the privilege to fly in uh, to the Middle East and, and there be able to go to a dig where they had unearthed the, the city of Ephesus. They're still doing it today. And I got to walk the, the, the very town named for this book, the very city, and the first century streets. I just want you to see the course of the world, how it affected the first century, how there's nothing new under the sun. For example, one of the things I noticed immediately was they were consumed with getting information. They had the third largest library in the world there in Ephesus. And furthermore, they had spots throughout the city where a herald, which was one given authority to give the message to the people what's going on, would stand and either orally do it or they would inscribe it on, on stone so the people could read it because everybody wanted to have the latest information of what's happening in the world. Sound familiar? I also saw in that city the people's desire to make money. Ephesus as a town, as a city, was on a major Roman highway, but it also had the premier seaport in the world at that time, one of the premier ones. And so they pointed to where that, point, that uh, seaport was, and there was about a mile walk up to the heart of Ephesus. And we were told that the businesses wanted to line that highway because, like anything with real estate, it's location, location, location. And they wanted to be the first to get what's coming off or to get what's going on. So they could make money to get ahead or at least get ahead of the bills. Entertainment. Well, they, they showed us this, this little stone. And, and on this stone they had in, inscribed a, the picture of a gladiator. And they literally had his record. He had retired. Now you often think that retirement meant, and he's dead. That, that, that's not true in gladiator life. They had wins and losses. And he survived the losses enough that they remembered his feats and they pointed to a place they're about to unearth next an area where the Colosseum was because people wanted to get lost from their life in the entertainment of what's going on finally let me just give you two more comfort they showed us the bathhouses uh, but also they showed us that each home wanted to have the latest comfort which in that day was Hot and cold running water in the first century. These homes had terracotta pipes that would go out to cold water or to hot springs. And they would channel that into the homes. And they wanted to have the latest comforts of hot and cold running water. And religion. They would cry, Caesar is Lord. Because for many of them, government was their religion. But also in Ephesus was the temple of Diana where the priests and uh, prophets of Diana were the prostitutes. And basically in first century Ephesus people were looking for a belief they would like to have as their own. A belief they could agree with. Do you see the course of the world? First century, 21st century, there is nothing new under the sun. And what is sad is for us to think that we could charm our way out of it, we will be fooling ourselves. There's actually a hopelessness to that change. Go back to verse 3. Look what it says. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Saying the word children means there are generations here. And there was an older pastor in Memphis years ago who told his congregation, 
He said, you know, we all come from a crooked farmer and a drunken sailor. The crooked farmer was Adam and the drunken sailor was Noah. And if you look at this, uh, it actually goes further back because Noah just continued. Even though the father wanted to start over again, this, the, the sinful nature was still there and still continued. Because it goes even further back than Abraham. Jesus announces this in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Having served here in Richmond for 22 years, I had the joy of connecting with a ministry in Richmond that reached out to exploited women. I talked to some of the founders just to get their picture. And they said one of the sobering things is many of these women that we, we reach out to do not feel they could ever change. Because this is the life they've always seen. As they talked further, it's been five generations within their family. Not only of being exploited, but the exploiters as well. But our walking dead nature is further than five generations. Back to Adam and before. So it seems like it would be hopeless to change. It is. If we are asked to do it ourselves. But we are not. Our hope in this life is because of Christ. And now we find that in verses 4 through 7. Look what it says. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, uh, with which he loved us, even when, he, uh, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. Our hope is not in what we can do. Our hope is in what God has already done. And he did it because of his nature. The first thing that we hear in verse 4. Talks about the nature of God. But God being rich in mercy. Because of his great love. With which he loved us. We often think that our salvation was solely so that the father could protect us. From eternity in hell. Now that's one of the beautiful byproducts of this. But if you go back to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3, the night before he's crucified, he gives us that the whole aim of our salvation is that we might once again know the nature of God. Having talked to God in the prayer in verse 2, saying, Lord, I'm thankful for those that you have given to me that I might give them eternal life. Then he defines in verse 3, this is eternal life. That they know you. It's a, a Greek word that means to know intimately through shared relationships, like walking and talking in the garden. Eternal life is that they know you, the only true God, and that they would intimately know me, whom you sent. That is our greatest hope. That is our greatest gift in our salvation. It comes to us because of God's nature, because of his mercy. There is that period where he could have wiped us out by his wrath. 
When you look at the words used in this verse, it's mercy, love, grace. And oftentimes we think the object of the Father's love is solely us. It is not. The object of the Father's love is His holiness. And it's out of His love for His holiness that He would not compromise His holiness and say, well, you blew it. Let me just change the way, change the standards of our relationship. He would not do that. He loves His holiness so much that the standard for the exchange, which was life to death, He then took our trespasses, our sins, for our death on Himself because of His love for His holiness to uphold it. Well, at the same time, to extend His love to us, to display what His nature is like in grace. Romans 5.8, God displays His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died. All of this is to remind us of our hope of salvation in this life with Christ because of the nature of God. And it's the nature of God that causes Him to act for our salvation and our hope. Back in verses 4 through 7, I just wanted to look at, at all the verbs that were in that passage. And when you begin to see all the verbs, you see solely God's activity in our salvation for our hope. Let me just list them to you. It speaks that God, in verse 4, loved us. Verse 5, made us alive. Verse 5, saved us. Verse 6, raised us up with Christ. In verse 6, also seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And in verses 6 and 7, placed us, twice it says, in Christ. I love this. God did it all. Our salvation is solely because of Him. He took us from being hopelessly and eternally dead and made us alive in Jesus. And now even though my depraved nature still surfaces at times, God lovingly confronts me with it and even uses it to conform me more to Christ. He confronts and conforms. He does not disown. Because now I am in Jesus, when God looks at me, he no longer sees my former father of lies. Through Jesus, God has adopted me, I'm his. And being in Jesus, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus, the one who's covering me. And he does all this with a huge so that. Look at verse 7. It says, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, we, we, we see in this, uh, make sure I turn too many pages. Yeah, so that we might see and experience firsthand how priceless and amazing God's grace and kindness are. In the light of the ages. Did you see that word in there? The ages. Now, when you, there are different words in the New Testament that are translated ages or time. But they, they simply can be identified in the simplest form is uh, as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But when you get to restoration, you can actually have that as two ages. Uh, one is this beautiful age we are in right now where we are still being restored and conformed to Christ. But this is the place where Christ is preparing his bride. While still we are living among the walking dead. 
And so during this period, in contrast to a life of the course of this world, living around the walking dead and having our nature conform to Christ, Christ is still loving us in this time, in this restoration, until he returns. And in that moment, according to 1 Corinthians uh, 13, verse 12, right now we, we see the hope of Christ that we have in him as magnificent, but we're still seeing it only through a glass dimly. And he's still using this to conform us to Christ in the fallen world. But then when Christ comes, when the groom appears and the bride is ready, we get to truly fully realize the hope that we have always had because of Christ. It is a beautiful thing that we have to remember in the course of this world. Which is why we finally get to... 11 through 14 again. But before I get there, the way this really became grounded in me was remembering a trip I took uh, to Mexico. I had the, the joy of being able to dive the caverns. They're called cenotes outside Cozumel. And our guide was very clear. And he said, I want you to know you're okay. We'll, we'll get into these caverns and dive underwater in these caverns. And sometimes you'll be completely engulfed. There'll be top, bottom, no way out. Just water. He said, but don't worry. These are cenotes, which means within 30 to 45 seconds, if you have trouble, I can get you to surface. So that was in my head as we began to dive. And we got inside, and, and there was a beautiful moment where he, what he described truly happened. There were no openings. And I watched underwater in this cavern the stalactites and the stalagmites meet. And they formed columns. And I literally felt like I was swimming through a scene from Lord of the Rings. It was magnificent. But then the columns started shrinking. And started coming in. To where there, there really weren't columns anymore. And we had to single file go through one little opening. Our guide went through first. The others. And then it came for me. And it was so tight that my regulator and tank was hitting the top. While my arms were doing this, and I'm trying to get through. And for the first time in my dive history, I'm panicking. Um, and the only thing that helped me get through that was to stop and breathe. I had to think, I've got everything I need for where I am right now. I've got all the oxygen I need. My regulator's working. I've got uh, uh, the lights that I'm needing. I've got the wetsuit I'm needing, the fence. I've got everything I need. I'm covered. And I've got the guide with me who said, he'll get me through this, and if I get in trouble, he'll get me out of it. And then that I breathed and went through. Sometimes even in our Decembers, there are tight places we listed some of them, bereavement, finances, family. And you get in there and you're wondering, how am I going to get through this? As a follower of Christ, remember you are covered with Christ. He has given you everything you need. And he is your guide in this. And he will guide you through this. Because I've been through other things and come on the other side and thinking how amazing he is. He will do it again. So I hope and remember and breathe. Which is exactly what we're commanded to do here. It says, therefore, in verse 11, look what it says. Therefore, remember 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility. Okay just go back to the first. These are the stressors remember. Financial. Time pressures. Isolation. Family tension. Separation. Divorce. Bereavement. And sometimes these ambush us all at once. And in those moments we got to stop and breathe. And remember your new identity in Christ. You look at what we just read, and it's all the labels they were given prior to Christ. They were called Gentiles. Gentiles by the Jewish people were simply those who were not God's chosen people. And they were called uncircumcised because they did not have the visible sign of being among God's chosen people. And they were called this by the circumcised who had the outward sign of being among God's chosen people. What I love about this is... In the Old Testament, circumcision was the outward sign of being among God's chosen people. In the New Testament, it's not. In 1 John, the outward sign of your salvation is actually your ongoing transformation by Christ. Out of a sacrificial love for him and his church, you submit to him and he continues to do that ongoing transforming work in your life you are his and he will not let go which is the next thing to remember remember your reclaimed new intimacy go back to verse 12 look what it says you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world this is the way we were before salvation. All are before salvation. Separated from Christ. Though he knew them, they didn't intimately know him. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They had no connection to the people of God. Strangers to the covenants of promise. The sweet promises of God for salvation. Life now and forever were foreign. Even impossible to claim on their own. And having no hope. Without God in the world. It's a great summary. Outside the salvation graced to us by God through Jesus. Our hopelessness to ever know God intimately. We were hopeless to ever know Him intimately. And experience all that comes with being His. And yet still. I'm just confessing to you as a brother. There are moments when those circumstances... That caused me to focus on them instead of the big picture. Have lasted longer than I ever imagined. Without any sign of change. Correction. Direction. And I begin to wonder. God do we even know what's going on here? And there are moments in the period where I feel like. Have you just set me adrift? Again remembering our hope. 
Take your Bibles, stay where you are, but find Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. God has written to a group of Jewish believers who are under persecution, who are now talking about, thinking about, just leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism. He's trying to remind them, you are not adrift. Look what he says to them. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here's the picture that gets to the beauty. Uh, in the Old Testament, the high priest entered behind the curtain, which was the Holy of Holies, once a year to put the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant for the sins of the people. And they had to do that every year for the sins of the people. But Christ, by his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, has now become our high priest of heaven and did not enter that holy place with the blood of, of calves and rams. He entered with his own blood. And because he purchased our, our redemption by the shedding of his own blood, it has to be done once, and it was done once. And the beauty of this is he is there and described as our Anchor of hope. Now here is the picture from first century. In the first century when ships would, would sail, they would come toward their, their port. And if they came to port at, at low tide, oftentimes they could not get to the dock. They had to wait out for high tide. But in order to secure their place at the dock... They would put the anchor of the vessel on a lower vessel, a smaller ship, smaller boat, and row it in. And then at the dock, drop it. Which meant regardless of when the tide was changing and coming in, or even if they were in the midst of storms while they're waiting for the tide to come in, they were already anchored. They were already set and secured. They were tethered to the anchor. And for you and me, we don't know when Christ's tide's coming in, when he's returning. And we don't know when the storms are going on, uh, how long this is going to be. But the one thing that is sure, our security is in the tethering to Christ, who is already set as our high priest. And all of this is already secure in him. Our hope is in Christ. The key is that even in these hard seasons when they come, is to therefore remember the beauty of our hope in Christ. And one of the ways that's helped me with this, and this is the last picture I want to give, is in those moments sometimes to ask, ask yourself, am I looking at this moment through the lens of Bedlam or the lens of Bethlehem? Now, I grew up in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, when they would meet, they called it Bedlam. So that's what I thought it was in a rivalry between teams in the state. But it's believed the word actually began in the 1500s. There was a monastery in London called St. Mary's of Bethlehem, caring for the needs of people. But there came a point in the 1500s where it was no longer cared for by the monastery. It was taken over by the city of London. And it was no longer a hospital. It became an insane asylum. And this begins to show you the, the course of this world and uh, the, the mindset of the walking dead. 
What happened to St. Mary's of Bethlehem as an asylum is people began to sell tickets so people could come into the asylum and heckle the people that were there. And it became one of the largest tourist attractions in London. And they would say it so quickly with such disdain, they would call it St. Mary's of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was just slurred into Bedlam. And after a while, St. Mary's was just taken off. I'm going to go to Bedlam and see the chaos that's there. Too often times, I can look at the chaos around my life, the chaos globally, the chaos locally, the chaos within my own decision making, and get lost in the Bedlam and forget I should be looking at all of this through the lens of Bethlehem. Christ came. Christ paid the price. Christ ascended as my high priest. Christ is my anchor of hope. And though I live in a world of the walking dead, and my nature gravitates to that at times, my hope is secure because I, because of all Christ has done, and am him. And being in him, I can get through this with him. He is my hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I praise you in the name of Jesus where you say in your word, therefore remember. And I ask forgiveness, Lord, when it takes me a while to get back to the place of remembering. I praise you that you are patient and long-suffering and kind. And I praise you that you are still even using uh, this fallen world in my nature to conform me to the one who is in me, Christ. The one who is covering me, Christ. Father, I pray that you would cause this to be an encouragement to us, not just in this moment, but as we scatter and as we live this week. Keep bringing to mind these rich truths. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Mark Beckton, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.